welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks again for joining us for our next lesson in our series on the heart of Philippians with Adam Barnes. In today's lesson, we'll be going over Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, where we'll see a lot of good and important as well as popular scripture. Adam's themes today will be obedience as well as working out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean and how does that apply to us? Well, we hope you enjoy this lesson. Thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. All right, so let's read the scripture and then we will pray. So a quick introduction. Last week we saw that we're called to unite around the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That was the whole goal. And humility, as somebody said, I think Kevin said, is the key to unity. Perfect humiliation or humility was exemplified by Jesus. He showed us that true humility is obedient. He showed us that it's sacrificial in nature at least, and that it always has the well-being of God and others at heart. We saw that God exalts those who humble themselves and that God brings down the prideful. So today we're going to see a couple of difficult verses, as we've already mentioned. Uh, in a passage, it's often taken completely out of context or that it's misunderstood. In the light of examples of humility, unity, sacrifice, obedience, uh, Paul gives some specific commands to what this is going to look like or should look like for us. And at the end of doing so, he really does make a beautiful statement that exemplifies and ties in all of the themes of this letter so far. You're going to recognize all of them as soon as you see it. So let's see the passage. In verse 12 he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of life so that in the day of Christ all have reason to glory because I didn't run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you uh, for this great passage uh, that follows uh, your example of humility uh, that was lived out through Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that uh, he did what he did. We thank you that he came and left the glories of heaven where he enjoyed perfect fellowship with you. And to come and become a man just so that he could live a perfect life and then give it up for us. To pay for our sin and then to rise again and conquer death so that he can offer eternal life to everyone who would trust in him for, as Savior. So we just pray that we would uh, synthesize these thoughts or put these thoughts together in our mind so that they will come out in our lives in a way that brings glory to you. Uh, Lord, as we, as we see today and talk about what it means to work out our salvation and uh, to do it with fear and trembling and what it means to do all things without grumbling or disputing and uh, to have unity in the body so that we can be lights for you amidst the crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as lights. Lord, just pray that you would motivate us, that you would encourage us, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom and the courage that we need to face that crooked uh, and perverse generation. And we ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing is living and working it out. Living and working it out. If you've noticed, that's what we, all of our application passages for this entire series are called living and working it out. Because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take the truths from Scripture and apply it. 
That's living our Christian life out. That's what all this is about. People who look at the New Testament and say that most of it's about how you get eternal life and make every single salvation passage about eternal life, they're doing it wrong. Because as we've seen in other passages already in Philippians, salvation isn't always talking about eternal life salvation. And the passage that we're going to see here today doesn't either. So, going all the way back to verse 27, which you guys memorized, uh, Paul builds, on, he's still building on that point, and he starts out this section in verse 12 by saying, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, always obey. The Philippians were characterized by their obedience. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's several things that I sacked here. Uh, but if we look uh, at first just at 12 and 13, we see the topic of obedience directly stated. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, he says, just as you've always obeyed. The emphasis on this section right out of the gate is obedience. That's important to realize, so I made it a blank. The emphasis on this section is obedience. Now, I do want to note, before we make application of this, is that obedience specific to the Philippians? Just as you have always obeyed? It is. Just as you have always obeyed, did, do you guys always obey? Have you done it right since the moment you believed? Because that's what he said about them ever since the first day, he said in chapter 1. I just need to, I, I want to mention that because not all believers' actions are obedient uh, or obediently constant or consistent. We can still make application from the passage, but it's important to note as we look at this that he's talking about just as you have always obeyed. That's important because he's going to use their obedience as a way to equate the work out your salvation. He definitely wouldn't have said that to the people of Corinth. Right, or Galatia. <clears throat> right. He wouldn't have said, just as you've always obeyed. That's, there's a reason that he does that. We're going to get to it here in just a second. What is the commandment that the Philippians and all believers, by the way, are given in verse 12? Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. And by the way, do it with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We can see from the context that Paul is tying in working out your salvation as an extension of what? If you're looking at this verse and you're doing this study yourself, and you see that he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Working out your salvation is an extension of what? If you take the commas away from that sentence, what is it? It's obedience. He says, just as. Paul says, just as you have always obeyed. Work out your salvation. That's important. Because the word that's translated just as, kathos, here in the NASB it carries an idea of comparison or correlation. He's making a comparison. Just as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's saying, just like you've always obeyed, continue in obedience by working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? 
Look at this box. Living and working out the gracious salvation granted from God in the, is in the contextual view. That's what he's talking about. Jesus obeyed by becoming a man. We already saw that in 5 through 11. So that he could use his earthly body to do the will of the Father. Right? Everybody agree with that? And we've already seen that. Had Paul call, what did Paul call himself to start of this book? A bond servant. What's a bond servant? Somebody who does the will of his master. He's drawing. This is one of those threads he's weaving. Jesus obeyed by becoming a man so that he could use his earthly body to do the will of the Father. In turn, believers are supposed to use our earthly bodies as bondservants of Jesus Christ, participating in his ministry and carrying out his will as his ambassadors. So I put this little equation here because that's what he's doing. He's equating obedience and he's uh, and working out their salvation. And if you want to take it a step further, in the context of that obedience, he's talking about serving in humility. That's what's in the contextual view coming right after verses 5 through 11. So the general command is to obey. Agreed? That's the emphasis that he starts in verse 12. The specific here is to work out your salvation. That's the specific command. And in what's in the context, what, what was directly before this? It was serving and sacrificing in humility. Now, I will say that you can take just the general and the specific. And, and cry, you can put a lot of things in, the, in context that would fit both working out your salvation and being obedient. Because as Christians, are we given commands even in the New, New Testament? Even though we're under grace, are we given commands? Should we obey those commands? Yeah, and it could be a ton of different things. But in the context here, he's talking about serving in humility, and it's important to look at it in its context. So to work out our salvation refers to living our lives in humble obedience, serving Jesus Christ. And really, if, if we're talking theology, what's, what are we talking about When we talk about serving and obeying, it is our sanctification, which involves what word? Which in a lot of circles is a bad word. It's close. It all ties in. Does works have a part to play in your eternal life salvation? It doesn't. But is it emphasized in Scripture? To who? To believers. Because I couldn't rightly divide that, I couldn't reconcile it in my mind. I would find these passages and say, it doesn't make sense. Paul says right there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm supposed to be scared because I don't know if I'm saved. Because I have to always look at my works and think, am I doing good now? Am I doing good then? Was I doing good then? Was I saved then? Am I saved now? Because what am I looking to? When I came to church here, I would, I, I, would, I would talk to people and I'd say, I agree with most of what J.B. says, but there's some things I just don't get. And they'd be like, what? What is it? What is it? I'd say, he teaches, just like what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, that eternal life salvation comes by faith without works. But isn't believing a verb? Isn't it a work? And they said, yeah, it is. But Romans 4, 5 clearly distinguishes it. Romans 4, 5 says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. And immediately, the cloud started to lift. 
to me, that was the key that I needed to help unlock it. And when you look at Scripture and you stop trying to uh, prove it what you believe and let it speak for itself, that's exactly what it will do. And when you study this passage, we see that he's talking about humble obedience and he's talking about serving, not for eternal life salvation, but because that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. And that's what I put right here. Working out our salvation is a commandment for believers. And that pertains to our purpose. What is our purpose? Make disciples. To make disciples. That's your individual purpose, your individual purpose, my individual purpose, and our identity as Christians. Who you are as a Christian. It's who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live like bond servants. We're supposed to be live in humble obedience. And though a lot of people don't understand what we mean by this, a person can be a true believer. You'll hear a lot of pastors say, if someone really believes or truly believes, it'll manifest itself in their life as acts of works. That's not true. And a lot of them will go to this verse to say that. That's not what he's talking about. He's already talking to believers. He's not telling them how to have eternal life. He's not saying you have to look at your works to prove that you're saved. He's not saying you have to look to your works to stay saved. He's talking about their sanctification, their Christian life. A person can be a true, regenerate believer, justified before God, declared righteous by Him, a child of God, but not living out. Do you agree with that? If you don't, I promise you that I can take a snapshot of you at some point in your life after you were saved and say, look, you weren't saved right here because you weren't living it out. Every single person has that. And so the question always comes, if you believe the opposite of this, ask somebody, okay, so you have to look to your works to say that you're saved? Well, yeah, because a true believer will live up. Okay, how many good works do you have to do to know that you're saved before you can have assurance? Like, just quantify. It doesn't have to be a specific number, like most of them, 51%. Because no matter what it is, you're still looking at that number to prove your salvation. And then for how long? Over the rest of your life or just over this little window or that window? What percentage of your works have to be good enough for you to be saved? And you can't answer that. And I'll tell you you can't because I used to be that guy. And people would ask me that. And there's not a good answer. I remember at seminary, I'm sitting on the quad. My brother flies up to take us to a Monday night football game. And he asked me that exact question. How can you know that you're saved if this is what you believe? And I had to say, because you'll persevere? Because that's what I believe. That's what my doctrine told me to say. That's not what Scripture says. It's not. Eternal life salvation comes by faith. And that's the point. Paul's message to believers under the direction of the Holy Spirit emphasized commandments, exhortation, and an urging to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So he does all this stuff to, conduct, to tell us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to walk worthy of our calling, to offer our lives as sacrifices, and to work out our salvation. None of that, by the way, has to do with eternal life. That's just what we're supposed to do. That message becomes illogical and irrelevant if there's a different special type of saving faith that causes a person to serve. If somebody says, you have to have the type of faith that works then why does Paul tell us we need to do it? Wouldn't the people who already have that faith do it without me wanting to do it? 
Why does he spend so much time exhorting us to walk worthy of our calling? Why does he spend so much time telling us to offer our lives as living sacrifices if there's a special type of saving faith that's going to automatically generate works? You can't do it. It doesn't work. I've been on the other side, and I'll tell you, it doesn't work. Would Paul beg, urge, implore, command, exhort, and motivate believers to engage in love and good deeds if everyone who truly believed were inherently engaged in good works and zealous for good deeds? He wouldn't. He wouldn't need to. You do not gain eternal life by working out your salvation. Working out your salvation is not necessary to prove you have eternal life. Working out your salvation is not necessary to keep your eternal life. Eternal life salvation is a gift. By definition, can this be a gift? No, you're having to do something for it. What about a reward? Can a reward be a gift? No. Heaven's not a reward? It's not. You get eternal life simply by faith in Christ. Everything else is about rewards. It's about sanctification of your Christian life. So, if we believe that, the next logical question is why work our salvation out with fear and trembling then? Why with fear and trembling? As we seek to live our lives as Christians, there's a temptation to lose sight of who's in charge, who's in control, who we serve, and where we get the power to serve. When a person lives with the thought or attitude that they're in control, that they're achieving things in their own power, they're not living out their faith in humility. Agree with that? So here's what I'm getting at. A healthy fear of God promotes obedience. When you realize He's there, that He's omniscient, that He's omnipotent, when you consider Him and what you do, when you acknowledge Him, it promotes obedience. Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want to obey. They don't want to know what to do, and they don't want to be told what to do. David says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts, that's obedience, gain rich understanding. His praise endures forever. The point is, the fear of the Lord promotes obedience. Number two, a healthy fear of God promotes an appropriate perspective. Remember we started out this lesson by saying watch over your heart with all diligence because from it flows the wellsprings of life. What comes out in your words, what comes out in your attitude, your behaviors, what comes out in your actions, that's all what's inside of you. And the way that you look at things, what you know to believe to be true or know or believe to be true is going to determine how you behave. So we have to have an appropriate perspective. And a healthy fear of God helps do that. Faithful believers, here, this is sad, but it's true. This is like, you need to put your emo, your goth clothes on when you talk about this part. People don't like to talk about this stuff, but it's true. Faithful believers should expect persecution and suffering. That's the difficult part. Because if people don't have the right perspective, this bothers them. This will turn your stomach if you don't understand that it's all going to work out if you don't understand who's in control, if you don't understand why there's suffering and why there's persecution. This bothers you. Look what he said. He already said it. 
For to you, he told the Philippians already, for to you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Timothy, when Paul's leaving, he tells Timothy the same thing. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So logically, through logic, you can say that if you're not being persecuted, if you're not enduring some sort of suffering, you're probably doing it wrong. Just to be honest with you, you're not making a stand. Because let me ask you this. When Paul writes this to Timothy, and he said, all who desire to live godly, can that be Christians? Or can that be, let me see, let me ask it a different way. Can Christians not desire to live godly? 100%. There's no persecution there. If you're not showing it, if you're not working it out and living it out, there's no persecution there. People may not even know you're a Christian. But he says, he tells Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That can come in a lot of different forms and fashions. We've already seen it for Paul that that came from within the Bible. It came from believers. People were attacking him and saying bad things about him. Uh, they, through envy and strife, they were promoting Christ to put him down because he knew it would be bad for him. It could be what's eventually going to happen to Paul. He's going to die for Christ, which he's ready for. He's already said it. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Um, my boss in athletics out of nowhere. He walked. I don't know if he had just listened to something on the radio or if he got on the phone with his parents. He literally walks in my office takes his sunglasses off and says, do you love Jesus? I said, I knew he was an atheist. And I go, yeah. He goes, you're an atheist. And walk, up, and walk back to his office. I'm not joking. That's a true... I'm not exaggerating that story at all. That's exactly what happened. This guy who held really my family's livelihood, if you want to look at it from that perspective, he, well, he, he thought I was stupid. He thought I was an idiot because I loved Jesus. That's persecution. I, I mean, I, you couldn't have told by my lifestyle back then that I was a Christian, except for that I answered the question and said I did. But that's persecution. It was a little baby stand, but I took a little baby stand. I could have said no, <laughs> but I didn't. So the point is, is that it can come in lots of different forms. It can come in lots of, lots of different fashions. Even your sacrifice. You guys could be at the movies right now. You could be doing whatever you do for a hobby. But you're giving up your time to come here and to put these things in your mind so that it will manifest in your life. So that it will come out in your actions. The knowledge that you're putting in your head will eventually come out in your life. That's sacrifice. In a sense, if you want to say that's suffering, it's little baby suffering, but it's suffering. It's cute suffering. But you're doing something when you could be doing something else. Here's B. We are weak and dependent on God and Jesus. We are weak and we are dependent on God and Jesus. You believe that? We are. That's how we should consider ourselves. But most of the times we don't. We tend to live like we're independent and strong and that we can do it through our own power. We say, I can do it. I'm going to do it for my good, my glory. I'm going to do it in my power. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, no, I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. John 15, 5, Jesus just turns this on his head. He said, I'm the vine. You guys are connected to me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. Jesus holds it all together is what it says in Colossians 1. Psalms 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? By the way, who shall, you, who, who, who shall you fear? Should you fear man? You shouldn't. Should you fear God? You should. The Lord is the defense of my life. He's the greatest. He's the most powerful. He's the most capable. He has the highest capacity. Those are all reasons to fear Him. But they're also the same reasons that you fear Him should be the exact same reasons that you trust Him. They should be the exact same reasons that you run for Him and that you take refuge in Him because He's all-powerful, because He's omniscient, because He's omnipotent. You should run to Him, take refuge in Him. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we recognize that the same God who created existence, who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, who holds everything together, who sets up kings and kingdoms and tears them down, he's at work in you for his good pleasure. That's a pretty cool thing that we get to collaborate with the creator of existence to bring about his will. We're going to see here in a second, Israel was supposed to do that. They've always been the ones chosen to do that. But they didn't do it. And they're not doing it today. So guess who gets to take up their mantle? The church. Us. Believers. That's really cool. Give me, two, give me goosebumps. We get a part to play in God's ministry. The creator of existence is looking at us to work out our salvation for his good and for his glory. To live out our salvation. We work in cooperation with God and with his will to accomplish his purpose. We don't do it for our will and for our purpose. We do it for him and for his purpose. In the next section, Paul's going to drill down and get more specific about what we can do to work out our salvation. And he demonstrates that when we do, our message has more integrity. So that's what I've called it. Let's see it. Hey, Yeah. before we leave this last section, I was thinking about that working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It seems to me that, that the salvation there is really a salvation from a wasted life. Salvation from possibly having run in vain. You know, looking back in chapter 1, I mean, really Paul's writing from prison to encourage these people that had supported him that, that his race didn't wasn't put on pause because he's in prison. And, but when he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I think the deliverance there is that through your prayers and, and through the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be delivered from this, this. Not that his deliverance was being delivered from prison, but I think delivered from that time having been wasted. Bingo. I think you hit the nail on the head. Because he's actually going to support your point here in a minute. Because he's going to say, after he gives to do all things without grumbling or disputing, he's going to say, so that I'll have reason to glory, because I didn't run in vain, nor toil in vain. Right. What he's about to get at is that the Philippian people, he says the same thing to the Thessalonians we're going to see here in a minute, he says, you guys are my fruitful labor. If you don't live it out, if you don't work it out, but by the way, he already knows they're going to, because he said in verse 6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who begin a good work in you will perfect it, or 
completed it to the day of Christ. He knows they're going to, but yet he still gives a theological point here to say, I don't want to run in vain. So work out your salvation. Because when you have integrity, when your actions meet your word, the message is going to persist. And it's going to carry out from epoch to age, from generation to generation. And then at the end of time, or at the end of this age, when we're at the judgment seat of Christ, and we're getting rewards, I'm going to have reason to glory. Because yeah. I didn't run in vain or toil in vain. I didn't waste my life. You're exactly right. And then I also think it's neat that, you know, in, in 119, when he says this will turn out for my deliverance, the deliverance there is the same, same word salvation. for salvation. It is. You're exactly right. And so he's not he's not saying that through your through the, your prayers and the Holy Spirit that, that that's going to turn out for my eternal life, but it's not going to end in wasted time spent here in prison. That's exactly right. I should have put in here, I should have made the point to talk about what the specific salvation was from. That's a really great point. And the general the general salvation is it's our sanctification. It's our Christian life. We are being saved from circumstances. We're being saved from discipline. We're being saved from loss and rewards. But specifically, I think you're exactly right. And that's going to be his point in this next section. He says, do things in the light of these ideas of obedience, humility, exaltation, and accountability in these previous passages. Paul ties in another command, and it's practical outcome from an outsider's perspective. Now he's talking about not just believer and believer and what we do in the body, but he's going to talk about why we do in the body and how it affects unbelievers. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We've discussed at length throughout this study that when the body's unified and when it's participating effectively with the right motives, we have integrity in our message. Our action meets our words. And when that happens, we're effective. In this specific passage, Paul has the effectiveness towards unbelievers in mind. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you're supposed to appear as the likes in the world. Grumbling here means murmuring. That happens all the time. It happens in the body. It happens outside of the body. It's not hard to find it. You, you see, you know, somebody says something in church or somebody does something in a meeting and you, you, know, you see two guys next to you. That's murmuring. They're complaining about something that shouldn't, they shouldn't complain about. And by the way, he's not saying, he says in everything. This is fully comprehensive. Do nothing. Or sorry, I'm, I wouldn't say do nothing for selfishness. He says, do all things without grumbling. All things. It means all things. It's comprehensive. Grumbling means murmuring, and disputing means arguing. We've already seen that word. So there's not an answer to this question, but I want you to answer it for yourself. What are some things that people murmur and argue about? Murmuring is a little bit harder because most of the time you can't understand what people are saying, or they're saying it to somebody because they don't want everybody to hear it. But the body has failed that large and it's arguing and disputing. We're supposed to know what to do and then to live it out confidently without having to argue about it. We're supposed to be able to take a stand by our actions so that we don't have to hold 
protest rallies. You think about Westboro Baptist Church and some of these people who argue or dispute, and it destroys the credibility and the witness of the body. It's a shame. It's not what we're supposed to do. It's okay to disagree, and we're going to talk about that here in a second. It's okay to have conflicting truths, not truths, conflicting opinions in the body, because that stuff is it's practical. That stuff's going to happen. But how you go about dealing with it is what matters. We're not supposed to do anything uh, in grumbling or uh, arguing or disputing. And like we mentioned, it's not realistic or practical, though, to expect constant and consistent harmony in the body. It's not going to happen. Something's going to come up. Situations are going to flare up. Younger or maybe even less immature believers who haven't latched onto these truths or haven't put them, they're going to come up with problems. Unbelievers, this is their view here, they're going, to, they're going to want to fight with you. They're going to want to persecute you. They're going to call you idiots. But we're supposed to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that we'll be above reproach. So that we'll be blameless. So that when somebody says, Peter does a really good job of saying the same thing later. But you want to be above reproach in whatever you say so that when people come at you, it's clear that they're lying. They don't have ground to stand on. Shaky at best. <clears throat> but, my, but let's get back to the point. So if we are to argue, what happens when differences of opinions or competing ideas arise in the body? Again, this is open-ended. What should happen? That's part of what you have a pastor for. He makes that final decision. So yeah, so that's a good point. So Kevin said the word pastor. Is 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 a pastor a spiritual gift? It is. What is it? What is what is that word? Shepherd. It's a shepherd. Did you guys know that the Holy Spirit gives shepherds shepherding? That's a spiritual gift. Pastor Shepherd. What is a shepherd supposed to do? Protect. Protect the flock. Tend to the flock. Uh, watch out for people who, the wolves, who try to come in to the flock. Also to keep them going in the right direction. Keep them from straying where they shouldn't, shouldn't be or cause them or the rest of the flock trouble. That's exactly right. We started out this lesson by talking about, and we said that we tend to stray where we ought not to when there's not accountability. So the Lord gives us shepherds in the body. Is a shepherd or is it plural? It should be. There's a lot of different church governance models that all say that they're the right one. They say that there's the biblical one. We have a pretty good one here. We have a elder rule. We the body gets to elect the leaders, kind of as representatives. That's a good model. Because these things happen in the body. Stuff's gonna happen. Somebody might not like the carpet that we're gonna put into a new building that we might build. There's going to be people who are going to murmur. There's going to be people who are going to grumble and complain about that. There's going to be people who complain about the type of music we play. There's going to be all sorts of that stuff that comes up and creates problems and friction in the body. Here's some practical application. 
If your problem was the, is with a person, what should you do? Work it out that person. That's exactly right. You go to that person first. If they've sinned and they clearly sinned, and you say, hey, in love, I see this, maybe you can think about this, and they say, no, nah, I know I did that and I'm not changing, then what do you do? Take another look at yeah, take another with you. Go to yeah. That's you're exactly right. That's what it says in Matthew. Get some brothers and go with you. This actually happened in the church I grew up with. Uh, one of our pastors' wife was in an affair. She was caught in grace and in love. They admonished, and she said, "No, nope, not giving it up." And they said, "Okay, that's church discipline time." They kicked her out of church. Because she was unwilling, she knew that what she was doing was wrong, but unwilling to give it up, or to repent from it, to change her mind about what she was doing. So anyway, my point is, is that do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God and of reproach. That doesn't mean that there's not many problems in the body that need addressed, because there are. But how you go about that matters. That's going to determine the effectiveness of what's happening. My point is that the core message, values, and principles of the Word of God don't change. When the body... Oh, sorry, I forgot to put this one part. Grumbling and disputing stand in opposition to unity, and it lessens the effectiveness of the body, especially to a fallen world. Grumbling and disputing stand in opposition to unity. Isn't this still in the unity section? Is grumbling and disputing healthy? It's not. Sometimes that means people either need to figure out the answers to their questions by going to leadership and asking why before they create dissensions and factions. Uh, and sometimes it means that they may not like the answer if they don't have a decision. This is so fascinating because I'm still in the middle of this moratorium on these, these podcasts. And this is exactly what they're going through. They go through these exact scenarios. It's amazing. The core message, values, and principles of the Word of God do not change. This stuff is still as practical and as applicable today as it was when it was written. When the body is unified, we are blameless and above reproach from the perspective of unbelievers. And listen to this statement. The more crooked and perverse the world becomes, the brighter our light should shine. We shouldn't move with the world. Just because the world gets darker doesn't mean that our light should get dimmer. Our light to a crooked and perverse generation, that should be from epic to epic, from age to age, should be the same. We take the same stands because we stand on the same truths. We stand on the same core message and principles and values of the Word of God. When believers' actions align with our message, our message has integrity. It has integrity. And will stand out to an unbelieving world. That's the whole point of what he's saying here. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Why? So that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, amidst the crooked and perverse generation, among whom you're supposed to appear as lights. I mentioned earlier that that was supposed to be Israel's job. Israel was supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be the ones that were examples to the world. Look what 
Moses says in Deuteronomy, he says, see, I've taught you to stay. He's just giving him the law. He says, see, I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. So that you should do this in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep them and do them. That's obedience, by the way. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who hear all these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation. Surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. What if the church today was so unified and so obedient that the fallen world around us said, surely these are a great people because of their wisdom and because of their understanding. Because that's the mantle that we've picked up. We're supposed to be lights to a crooked and perverse generation. Just like Israel was supposed to be that for them, but we're not doing much better than Israel. We're on life support. So regardless of the era, the epoch, or the age, Believers should always be conscious of how their attitudes, their words and actions are perceived by unbelievers. Because it matters. They're in darkness and we're supposed to light the way. If we're faithful to carry out our purpose and our ministry by giving out the word so that the message persists throughout the generations, we'll have reason to be proud or to be boastful at the judgment seat of Christ. And you say, you're not supposed to be boastful. That's not humility. Paul says, Paul said it right here. Let's see it. Let's see what he says in this next section. Because he says reason to rejoice. He says so that you'll be above reproach in the midst of the crooked and perverse generation, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory. That word is actually to boast. Because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. So believers are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, with humility, serving others just as Jesus and I serve God and others. This type of obedience is sacrificial in nature, and when it's done faithfully in unity with the right motives, it makes us attractive to an unbelieving world. That's a synopsis of everything that Paul's taught so far. Holding fast the word of life can be interpreted here to mean holding forth. You can either think about holding out the gospel, presenting the gospel to somebody, or you can think about it like the Statue of Liberty holding up a light. But it can also mean holding fast to the word of life. Like grasping it, holding on to it, making it a part of who you are. It works either way. Both work because you can't effectively present or hold forth the word of life without living it out or clinging to its truth. I think that in the context, it's holding fast to the word of life. But like I said, it already works either way. So why does Paul say to hold fast the word of life? So that he'll have reason to boast or glory in the day of Christ. Paul knows that his faithful effort and labor was used by God to change lives. Remember in chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, these people are his fruit for which he will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember he said, you guys are my fruitful labor. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, but for me to live on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He says they're going to be his fruitful labor and he wants that to 
culminate and rewards the judgment seat of Christ. He says the exact same thing to First Thessalonians. Look, he says, "For who is our hope and our joy and our crown of exaltation? Is it not you in the presence of our, our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and our joy." He tells the Thessalonians the same things he tells the Philippians. You guys are my fruitful labor. Keep live out, work it out, work your salvation out. Take what you know to be true and employ it. Put it into service of Christ. Because just like you said, Brent, Paul wants his life's work to count, even if that means dying for his mission. In turn, he wants the Philippians' faithful participation to count as well. He has already stated that he's confident that God's going to use them and their participation into the day of Christ. That's why he says next that even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too. I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Thinking about the judgment seat of Christ in the day of Christ has apparently led Paul to think about his death. Like Kevin mentioned last week, he's thinking about pouring out the sacrifice the drink offering in the law a drink offering was the last step it's the last thing they did after a burnt offering or before the completion of the burnt offering for a free will offering or a peace offering or to fulfill a special vow and also at the ordination and consecration of the priests they poured out the drink offering and this final step just involved pouring out wine as the drink offering as an offer as a soothing aroma to the Lord I, caught, I took this quote because I thought it hit the nail on the head from Woolworth's commentary. He says, Now he, talking about Paul, is willing to be a sacrifice poured out, whether it's a libation complimenting their faith, because that's what he says upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, just like the drink offering was poured out after the carcass was burned. That was the sacrifice. Like the drink offering of Jewish sacrifices or in the sense of pouring out his blood at death. If his own suffering and even death would further the cause of the Philippian church, he's willing to submit to the will of God with joy and rejoicing. That's beautiful. Paul maintains an appropriate and motivating viewpoint here in what he knows may be the twilight of his life. In the midst of it all, he rejoices and he calls the Philippians to do the same. This is a powerful and an exemplary statement by Paul because it ties in, if you think about it, it ties in every single thing. All of those threads that we've talked about, this is him weaving it all together. He uses himself in his example to further the support of the things that he's established up to this point. Think about this statement. It has participation and fellowship in it. It has humility. It has obedience. It has sacrifice. It has joy and rejoicing. It has perspective. He spent the first chapter and a half developing those four themes. And this one statement, that even if I am being poured out as a compliment to your faith, for you guys, I rejoice. And I share my joy with you all. Because that's what we're supposed to do. We've talked about obediently serving. We saw that Jesus' act of sacrifice was a humble act of service to his master and for us. Paul says, I'm willing to do the same thing. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And he tells them to do the same thing. You too, I urge you, 
rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. What do you think he's meaning right there where he says you too in the same way? Because they're participating. Yeah, I think he's saying in the same way that I'm willing to empty myself of everything except obedience and service, you be willing to do the same in the same way and be happy about it. 100%. I think that's the, I think that's the exact message. I think that's the message for them. That's the message for us. That's the perspective. You can't have that perspective. You can't have Paul's perspective. You can't see things the way he saw them, or you can't see the things the way that Jesus saw them without considering the fact that you're supposed to sacrifice for others. And I, I don't know that he's necessarily saying, I'm ready to die, but I think what he's saying is, it doesn't matter whether I do or I don't. He kind of said that already, but I, I think the focus is not sacrifice to death the focus is it doesn't matter what comes because all I'm focused on is being obedient and pleasing to God yeah I think you're exactly right especially because of the word focus your focus what your purpose is your intention the way that you're looking at things your mindset your perspective that's his exact point otherwise when you get to chapter 4 and you read, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, so that the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds. If you if you practically look at that and you don't look at that through the right perspective, it doesn't make any sense. You can say, so I'm not supposed to be anxious about anything. I'm not supposed to be afraid of anything because I pray. What he's saying is, if you have the right mindset. If you, with a grateful heart, a thankful heart, uh, making supplication, praying to God, basically saying that no matter what happens to me, I'm okay with it because you're good, you're God, and your will is what matters and not mine, that's the ultimate peace. Everything else falls away. Everything else crumbles away. You're not afraid of things like you used to be afraid of them. You don't worry about things because you know who's in control. And you know that he may make you suffer. Or, as he said earlier, he may graciously let you suffer. He says, Because what happens if you do? You're going to get rewarded. Yeah. He says, For to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. The granted there is the word grace. He says, For you it's been graciously given that you'll suffer for him. And when you, and that's why I put that into the perspective piece, a healthy fear of God helps you get that perspective. To say, I know who you are, I know what you're capable of, and you may use me in that way. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Because at the day of Christ, I don't want to have running vain nor toiled in them. I want my life on this earth to have mattered in such a way to where there's no way I'll be ashamed of his coming. There'll be no way that when I stand before him, I won't hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's hard. Because you have to be willing to lay down your time, effort, energy, emotion, all those things. And then, for the greats, for John, for Paul, for all these guys who died, they gave up their lives. Greater love has none other than this, than a man that laid down his life for his friends. That's why husbands are supposed to love their wives. That's sacrificial love. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And we're supposed to do that also... For each other. 
It's not just husbands and wives. It's Dave DeBray. It's Kevin DeTay. You're supposed to lay down your lives for each other. Be imitators of God's beloved children and walk in love Jesus Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice. So here's the sermon. The Philippian people were characterized by their obedience. Therefore, or so then, just as you've always obeyed, Paul equates their obedience with working out their salvation. We are instructed through humility to obediently serve because it provides integrity to our lives. It's who we're supposed to be and what we are supposed to do. It's not what we do and who we are. Because a lot of times, believers don't consider that. When you sin, presumptuously, meaning you know you're doing it, in that moment, you're saying, I'm doing what I want, and I know that it's apart from what God wants. That's not who you are. That's not what you're supposed to do. That's why this is not for eternal life salvation. It's Christian life salvation. We are urged, encouraged, told to do these things, because it's who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, not because it automatically happens. Read something. No, I was just saying we we know that it's not what God wants, and that at least at that moment, if we're going to do it, we don't care. That's exactly right. I know this is not what you want me to do, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. And when we do that, we are making ourselves to God. So anybody who says that uh, you have to work for your salvation. That just doesn't fit. I'm sorry. It doesn't fit. Because how often do you make yourself the God by presumptuously sinning? And something we didn't talk about is what, all the, what about all the stuff that we're told to do that we don't do? Is that sin? Anytime I'm not, even if I'm not sinning, if I'm not, if I'm sitting and playing video games for four hours, I'm not conducting my life, my life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. That's sin. Just because I'm not doing something I'm not supposed to be doesn't mean it's not sinful. Where's the freedom and salvation from that? So anybody who says that your sin is because of what you do or don't do, they're missing the message. And these type of passages are going to make them stay up at night. Because they can't fulfill it. A healthy fear of God promotes obedience and, it, and maintains an appropriate perspective. That should be maintains, plural, not maintaining. A healthy fear of God promotes obedience and maintains an appropriate perspective. Part of our appropriate perspective is understanding that we're weak and that we're dependent on God. Because that's humility. If you don't understand that and you think that you're strong and that you can do it in your own power, you're going to get broken. Inherently, if not divinely. Another part is that we'll be persecuted for our faithful participation. If you're faithfully participating, expect persecution. Expect suffering. That's not popular to say. That's not something you're going to hear a lot of Sunday school teachers teaching to their kids. But it's true. And by the way, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We work in cooperation with God and His will to accomplish His purpose. That's so cool. That's sanctification. That's cooperation. That's participation. That's works. We get to cooperate with God. He gives us the spiritual gifts. He gives us the opportunities. He gives us the power. He gives us everything. All we have to do is be faithful to use what he's given us to use, and then he's going to reward us someday for it. That's beautiful. The integrity of our message is somewhat dependent on our faithfulness of our actions. Somewhat. 
If we're obedient, there are rewards. We've seen it so far throughout this class over and over again. But the simple fact of the matter is that obedience brings exaltation and rewards. The fruit of your labor will provide reason for your exaltation at the judgment seat of Christ. So we've already asked, and we've already asked this group once as an application. Look at your field. What's ripe for the harvest? Where can you get fruit? If you're a mom, you've got kids. If you're a brother, you've got siblings. If you're a worker, you've got co-workers. Somewhere, there's a place for you to invest. There's some place for you to plug in. All right, so here's the application. Be proactive in your intention to live out your faith. That's the exact reason we call the application living and working it out. Don't just do it. Be proactive about it. When you wake up, know that you're going to do it. Keep an ever-present mindset about who God is and what he desires for you. That's out of fear of him. Not an unhealthy fear. You don't want to run and hide from him. But you want to know who he is and know what he wants from you and whether or not you're in line with his will. Remember that you're working in cooperation with God and his power, not for ourselves and in our own power. That's a theme in Philippians. That's why he starts out in chapter 1 by telling his people who are doing it wrong so that he can talk about things, Jesus who did it right, and then encourage us to go do the same thing. Four, evaluate and consider your words and actions. Are they above reproach? Are they attractive to the unbeliever? Trust me, I wrote that for me, not for you. That's hard. There's more, you know, people always want to think about your, your sex organs and your mind as your biggest sinful areas. But in Proverbs, the greatest area of focus is the tongue. So con consider your words and consider your actions. Are they above reproach and attracted to the unbeliever? Five, hold fast to the word of life. That's the gospel message. That should motivate you. Hold fast to it. I meant to put the other one. It's supposed to be both of them. What did what'd you say? Hold forth. Hold forth. Yeah, hold forth. Hold forth the word of God. Hold fast and hold forth the word of God. <clears throat> Consider how to effectively stimulate others to love and good deeds. That's what he, the author of Hebrews says. Don't forsake the assembling of your together, or assembling of yourselves together as do some. Don't do that. But encourage one another. Consider how to stimulate one another onto love and good deeds. By the way, Paul doesn't need to say that if every true believer works out their faith. Or the author of Hebrews. <clears throat> All right. Test. It's easy. This one's easy. This is a great verse. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You shouldn't just memorize this. You should pray it. Because that's a pretty good purpose. Something that you can apply every single day. Because when you go out into this fallen world, when you leave the walls of your home and the walls of this church, you're out there. It's a dark world. There's a bunch of dead people walking around. And I think about it. If you're doing it right, you're a flame. And they're, they're moths. And if you're doing it right, it'll attract them. What's the general equivalent to the specific command to work out your salvation? This is just a little chart. What was the general command? Obedience. So obedience. What was the specific command? Serve with humility. 
Uh, so that's the contextual one. Oh. That's the next one. The verse today said to work out your own salvation. That's what he's paralleling. The general was what? Obedience. Obedience. Today's specific was work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in context, he's talking about serve out of love and humility. So after everything that we've talked about today, go back and look at that. and It'll make sense if it didn't while I was teaching it. Four, know the two ideas that a healthy fear of God promotes. A healthy fear of God promotes obedience and it promotes the appropriate perspective. Why are we supposed to do all things without grumbling or disputing? So we're above reproach? Yes, so that we have integrity in our message. We're more effective when we do. Why did Paul say, what did Paul say would give him reason to boast at the day of Christ? I'll pass the world of life. life Any of those things will work. Any of those things from the verses that you're going to have memorized, so that won't be easy. What is it called when our actions match our words? That's integrity. Thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. If you enjoyed this lesson, make sure you subscribe so you can hear the rest of the lessons on True to the Bible podcast. And if you have any questions regarding this lesson or any of the other lessons, make sure you contact us at hunter.davis.com at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for joining us.